You know, one of the things we've been learning in our time together in the book of Matthew, and certainly in this season of COVID, is that part of God's design for worship is that it be done publicly. That we as the people of God would build into our normal rhythms a public expression of our worship of God. God's people are called to gather. And we are called to gather in such a way that we can be seen, certainly by our fellow brothers and sisters, but even to those who are outside of the church so that they can be directed to the God that we serve. We're called to gather together to encourage one another. And then collectively to be an encouragement to those outside of the church who are in the world. God calls us as the people of God to be together to edify one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 To exhort one another, to build each other up into the image of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3.13 We are called to, to stir up one another toward a love and good works. Hebrews 10.24 As we pray for one another, as we sing around one another, as we teach one another from the word of God. All those things are beneficial and necessary, essential for the people of God as we gather to worship him. But our gathering is also an opportunity for us to be salt and light, to be a kingdom outpost, displaying for the world around us the transformative work of the gospel amongst ourselves, to be a set-apart people, a different kind of people fit for the kingdom of God as a testimony to the goodness of the kingdom of God. I want us to be reinforced with the truth now more than ever that the gathering of God's people is essential, not only for ourselves, but for the work of building the kingdom, but there's also a danger as we gather together to express our worship publicly. What should be done for the glory of God, if we're not careful, can be done for our own glory, as we saw last week. Listen, anytime we gather around people, it is possible for us to be more concerned with what people think of us than what God thinks of us. In many ways, Many expressions of worship can be affected in this way. And our singing, that's probably the, the most obvious one. Some of you probably got really excited when we started to sing that Shane and Shane song because you know it so well. And it just, it hits the pocket of your voice, right? And you, when, that, when that bridge comes and it's building, you're just ready to sing with all of your might. And in the back of your mind, you start thinking, I hope someone around me is hearing how good my voice sounds on this song. And you're just waiting for the moment when it's over, or even in the middle of it. Someone just give, give you that look, like, hmm, that was really strong, brother. Or sister, that was, really, that was really great. And then after the song, they turn around and they say, hey, you've got a really good voice. Have you ever thought about being on the praise team or singing in the choir? After the service, they pull you aside and said, hey, the Lord has given you such a gift with your voice. And you are, you are singing to God, and then all of a sudden, your flesh kicks in, and what was meant to direct attention to him, suddenly you're thinking and hoping that it directs attention to you. Isn't that crazy how we do that? I, I struggle with this in preaching. Every time I get up here, I have to fight against 
longing to impress you more than I impress God. Or, or trying to find favor with you more than I find favor with God in my preaching. Hoping that you'll be impressed by what I say or how I say it rather than be directed to the glory of God for your own good. Christ, and this part of the Sermon on the Mount, the first part of chapter 6, is challenging us to make sure that our, our public expression of worship in the kingdom has the right audience in mind. Because it matters in the building of the kingdom. Jesus deals with Three areas of public expression specifically in verses 1 to 18. Last week, we looked at giving to the poor, almsgiving, being generous in our giving to those in need as an expression of worship to God. And this week, we'll look at two additional ones, the other two, prayer and fasting. Prayer, of course, is personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. It's our direct line of communication to him as we respond to the revelation of who he is. Fasting is a discipline to free us from distraction as we remove something normative from our lives to remind us that there is something greater that we should be seeking. And both of these expressions, both of these expressions are essential for the people of God. We probably really need to hear that as Baptists. I don't know many Baptists that fast. We like our food, right? And yet, there's something essential. You may say, Jared, I fast from vegetables. That's not what we're talking about, right? So that you long for, that you like, that you give up for a period of time to be reminded of the excellencies of God. These are essential for us because they remind us of our full reality as the people of God. That we are both physical and spiritual beings. That we exist in a temporary setting in the context of a larger eternal setting. So easy for us to lose sight of all that's happening around us. We can, we can become obsessed or only focused on the physical realities and, and forget that there are spiritual dimensions to everything that we are experiencing that are important for us to remember. And prayer and fasting remind us of these realities when they're done in the proper way. When they're done in the wrong way, they can actually reinforce a focus on physical realities at the expense of spiritual realities. We focus on flesh and blood and not the powers and principalities that war against us. And the God who is orchestrating all things toward his glorious ends. And Jesus is challenging us this morning to make sure that in these public expressions of worship, we have the right audience in mind. All of our worship, individually and corporately, is for the glory of God. He is the audience that we must have in mind. And so we need to make sure, as the people of God, that when we use these gifts to seek him, that it's actually him that we are seeking. Otherwise, what we're doing is not worship at all. Well, maybe it's worship of ourselves. Let me read for us how Jesus challenges us in this. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 18. Here's what the word of God says. In fact, I'm going to go back up to verse 1 just for context. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Then he deals with giving to the needy. And in verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Two public expressions of worship that Jesus is challenging us in this morning to make sure that our hearts are right, that our focus is right when we are expressing them, that we have God in mind and his approval, not the approval of man. Let's consider each one of them separately, okay? The first thing that Jesus deals with is the practice of prayer and the kingdom of God. And he, he's continuing his rebuke of the hypocritical Pharisees in their worship practice by challenging two common misconceptions about the nature of prayer. He deals with the, the how of prayer and the what of prayer. The, the way that you pray and the content of your prayer. He deals with both of them to make sure that our prayer life, both individually and corporately, is pleasing to the Lord. How should you pray and what should you pray? How you pray. Jesus begins by drawing attention to the heart of those who love to pray publicly for the attention of man. We see that in verse 5. You must not be like the hypocrites because what do they love? What are they expressing from their heart when they pray in this manner? They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners because they love to be seen by others. They love for people to hear them. They love for people to be impressed by the mastery of the language, the poetry that they're offering as they offer their prayers to God. They love for people to be impressed by their theological knowledge. And, and all the ways they are expressing their knowledge of God in the way that they pray. When they get up in front of people, they are expecting and desiring a pat on the back, words of affirmation. 
not for brotherly encouragement or sisterly encouragement, but for their own glory. And Jesus says, this has no place in the kingdom of God. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. A foundational verse in the Sermon on the Mount. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they, the others, yes, may see your good works. But why? So that they can give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not glory to you. Glory to God. The goal of these public displays of worship is not to have the gaze of man stop at us, but to be directed beyond us to our Father who is in heaven, that he may be glorified. Jesus says, when these hypocrites pray in this way, with this desire, they've received their reward. They've received what they have loved. And as a result... Their prayers are meaningless. Don't be impressed by them. Don't strive to be like them. They're whitewashed tombs. They may look good on the outside, but there's something dead and rotten on the inside. It is the prayer of a righteous man that avails much, according to James 5, 16. That has nothing to do with the way their words are orchestrated. It has everything to do with the heart. Be impressed by what God has done inside. Not what man is doing outside. If you want the approval of man, continue to pray for the ear of man. But if you want the approval of God, you've got to pray in a different way. To get his ear to incline toward you. And Jesus helps us. He says, even in public, you need to pray as if you are in secret. Don't be like the hypocrites who love the outward. Listen, verse verse 6. When you pray, you go into your room and you shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that you should never pray in public? I hope not, because I'm a professional prayer in public. Every time. Jerry, you want to pray? Sure. Hopefully I'm not disobeying here. What is he saying? Is it it ever okay to pray in public? Of course. Jesus prays in public. The teaching of the New Testament instructs on how we should pray in public. So why is he saying this? Well, he's saying when you pray in public, it should be as if you are praying in private. That, That the way you pray in private should influence the way that you pray in public. Because when you, what happens when you're praying in private? Who's there? It's just you and God, right? And the only person that you're concerned about in terms of pleasing, is the Lord. And so what Christ is saying is, hey, listen, when you get up to stand in front of people to pray, to lead them in worship for the glory of God, you got to do some work in your heart and your mind and your spirit. you got to go to your secret place. And you got to get right there before the Lord to make sure that it's only Him, just like when you're in secret, it's only Him that you're concerned about. And you got to forget that there are people around you. Only be concerned with Him. And then, in doing that, you will lead others to see your good works in prayer and glorify God. That's how you pray. You don't pray for the applause of men. You pray for the approval of God from a heart that has been transformed by God. And then after he addresses the how, he gets to the what. This is how you pray. This is the the way that you pray. So now what do you pray? Now that your heart's right, what do you say to God? 
individually, corporately. Well, Jesus first says, you don't have to heap up empty phrases. The content of your your prayer doesn't need to be, hey, God, oh, God, oh, God, 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 over and over again, trying to get the attention of God. That's what the Gentiles do. They think that the length of their prayers and the the repetition of their prayers will get the attention of God or earn the attention of God. It reminds me of the misconception we see on display in the story of Mount Carmel. Remember the story, Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? There's this great showdown, this epic showdown of truly biblical proportions in the Old Testament. It's, it's in sec, our first Kings chapter 18, if you want to turn there. If you you don't know the background, Elijah has brought, under the direction of God, drought upon the land because of the the wickedness of a king named Ahab, who directed the people of Israel to start worshiping Baal, a false god. And as the people have become desperate, they want an answer for, for this drought to be lifted from the land. And so here's what Elijah proposes. We're going we're gonna to see who's really God. So prophets of Baal, there are 450 of them. I'm going to give you a bull. And we're going to build an altar. And then you're going to pray to Baal that he would send down fire and consume the sacrifice. You don't put any fire to it. He's going to have to do it. And then I, just me, I'm the only one left, prophets of God, the true God of Israel, I'm going to do the same thing, and I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to put a a bull on it, and then later we see that he actually adds water to it. And then we're going to to see whose God answers, and whoever answers, that is the Lord. That is God. That's who you should serve. So let's see who answers. And there's this great moment in the story in, in, in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah begins to mock the prophets of Baal. Here's what, here's what they're doing. These prophets, verse 26, they, they take the bull that was given them, they prepare it, and they call out to the name of Baal from morning until noon. It's a long time for most of us. I guess if you're a college student, maybe your morning starts at 11. But for most of us, morning until noon is a long time, all right? So morning, they're saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. Do you want to know why? Because no one was there. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Maybe he's musing, or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep. you got to awake him. So get louder. Do more things to get his attention. They cut themselves. They cry till midday passes. And despite the blood and despite the cries, nothing happens. Isn't it a shame that some of us think that we have to cry out to God that way to get his attention? That we think that we have to earn his attention by lengthy prayers. No, 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 that's not what Jesus is saying. Our prayers are different. Why? Because our God is different. Jesus says something astonishing in our passage today. He says that you have a heavenly father who is attentive to you. You go to your room, verse 6, you pray, you shut the door to your father who is in secret, and he will see you. Don't heap up empty phrases. 
Do not be like them. Listen, verse 8. For your Father knows what you need even before you ask. Children don't have to get the attention of their father. This is something that I've, I've learned more and more to appreciate as a dad. My kids don't have to get my attention. They have it. They have it. And when they cry out to me, my ear turns to them. Yesterday, we, we had the privilege of participating in a, an event for our Montessori school that we have at our church, uh, Children's Discovery Center. It's an excellent school, and our son Jude has just thrived in it. Yesterday, they had a, a socially distanced fun run with masks, and then they had a, an auction, a silent auction to kind of help raise money for the school. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there kind of around in our, our parking lot area by the the, the playground, a lot of people talking, a lot of kids playing, winds blowing 30 miles an hour. And I, I'm probably 30, 40 yards from Jude, and he's playing on the monkey bars. And I'm talking with someone else, and then I hear this faint cry, Dad, Dad. Now, there's like 100 kids, and a lot of dad, not 100 kids, 50 kids, let's say. I don't want to over-exaggerate. 50 kids, and there's a lot of dads. But it, was, it shocked me how clearly I heard his voice and I knew that was my son. And I responded. Guys, that's how God responds to us. You don't have to earn his attention. The moment you cry out to him, he's there. And here's what makes him an even better father. He knows what you need even before you ask. I had to figure out what you'd wanted. And it was to do some trick on the monkey bars. God knows what you need even before you ask. You don't have to get his attention. You have it. So, with that in mind, come before him as your father. And here's what you say to him. Here's, here's the content. Begin with an acknowledgement of who he is. When you pray, you start with God. He is your father. And I I want you just to to sit for a moment with how incredible that statement is and how incredible it would have been to the people who were hearing it. Remember, the Jewish people highly revered God. There's 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 a good aspect to that. But they revered him so much they wouldn't even say the name of God. They wouldn't say Yahweh because he was so holy and he was so other. And that is in part true. And yet Jesus comes here and says, You can call him Father, Abba, Father. God is worthy of your respect, but he's worthy of your respect in a way that you would respect your Father. So you come to him, and you come to him because you recognize that he wants you to come to him. He's your dad. Come, pray to him, talk to him, respond to him. That's what he desires. And then you recognize that he's set apart. His name is holy. He's your father and he's different. You're coming and you're praying to him because guess what? If you pray to other gods, they don't answer because they're not there. Your God is a living, true God. And you see the reality, the the trueness of him and how he has revealed himself and continues to reveal himself. Our father who is in heaven. 
other, but near. Hallowed be your name. You are different. You are set apart. You are holy. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our prayers. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We acknowledge, God, your will is better than my will. You know more than I know. And I'm going to trust that what you do is better than what I would have done. I can promise you. I don't want the responsibility of this world. I don't want fully the responsibility of my whole life. I messed things up enough. His will, his knowledge is better than mine. And I want his will lived out upon the earth because I know that when his will is fully done, there will be true blessing and true joy. I want his kingdom because I want a king worthy of this world to be on the throne or worthy of ruling over this world to be on the throne. His name is King Jesus. And it's amazing that when you start your prayers with an acknowledgement of who God is, how it changes what you ask for, how it gives you perspective. So you start with an acknowledgement of who God is when you pray content-wise, and then you move to a declaration of your need for him. A declaration that you need him as your father, as the one who can do something about your situation, as the one who desires to do something about your situation, as the one who knows what the best answer is to your situation. You approach him with that in mind, and then you say, God, provide for me. Give me what I need. Give me my daily bread. You, you are the author of all things good. You want to provide. So I'm asking you to provide exactly what I need. And I'm going to trust in your provision. I'm asking you, verse 12, to pardon my sin. To forgive me as I forgive others. You are the only one who can give the forgiveness that I need to embrace eternal life. And so I'm asking you to forgive me as only you can forgive. And then I'm asking you to protect me from evil. Verse 13, you are the only one powerful enough to protect me. You're my dad. I know you want to protect me. It's your will that I not succumb to evil, temptation of any kind. So I'm asking you to protect me. I'm asking you to do what only you can do, and I'm declaring my dependence upon you as your child. Will you move? And Jesus says he will do these things for those who are truly his. Isn't that incredible? As our Father, he will do these things for those who are truly his. How do we know this? Verses 14 and 15. It's a pretty striking number of verses here, a couple of verses, where Jesus says, after he He's working through the what of prayer. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so he's using the language of forgiveness here to help us understand where we stand before God. If you are a child of God, if you are fit for the kingdom of God, you will be a forgiving person. Because God has forgiven you. And you've been wrecked by that forgiveness. You've been transformed by that forgiveness. You recognize what that forgiveness cost. You recognize your sin. You recognize how you messed up. You recognize that you deserved an eternity separated from God. You deserved the wrath of God. And yet God in his glory and his love sent his only son to save you. 
to live the life that you could not live, to die the death that you deserve so that now you could be holy as God is holy. You could be fit for the kingdom of God. You could have a transformed heart that gives you eternal life, an abundant life. If you have truly understood the forgiveness of God, you will be a forgiving person because you recognize there is nothing anybody can do to you that is greater than what you did to God and yet he sacrificed in order to be able to forgive you of your sins. And if you exhibit that in your life, you are a child of God who can truly call your Father in heaven Father. And you can ask him for these things. And he is desirous, desirous to give them to you. Hear me, Christian. To be unforgiving is unchristian. You're not like your father. But when you forgive, you are showing the world a glimpse of your father who is in heaven. You are being holy as he is holy. You are seeking in perfection as he is perfect. That's a good thing. Jesus says, when you pray, pray in this way. Here's how you pray. Here's what you pray. And then he moves to fasting in verses 16 to 18. Practice of fasting in the kingdom of God. And he deals with the practice of fasting in, in largely the same way. In essence, critiquing the Pharisees' hypocritical approach again to fasting. Now, there were many kinds of fasting in this time. There was a normal fast where you abstain from all food, solid or liquid, with the exception of water, usually to prepare for a significant event. And you allow that hunger and that thirst to drive you to something that's, that satisfies you in a greater way, right? So I'm not eating food for the next two or three days. Well, guess what? Your body's going to notice that, right? Probably some of your bodies are noticing not eating right now. And you're hungry because it's almost lunchtime. Your body notices that. And when you choose not to indulge that physical appetite, it allows you to engage your spiritual appetite. And you begin to say things like, do I crave God the way that I crave Whataburger? I should. Am I longing for God the same way that I'm longing for food or water or drink? And so that's what was happening there. A, a normal fast where you do everything except water. To, to stir your or exercise your spiritual muscles. There was a partial fast where you restricted just part of your diet. You gave up just one piece of something that was pretty consistent. So you would notice the absence and then think about God and the, the noticing of that absence. There was an absolute fast where you didn't have even water. And that was a shorter period of time, but it was usually in the face of something very urgent. And then they had private and corporate fasts as the people of God, where they would collectively agree together to fast in order to honor the Lord or because of a national emergency, like a drought or something, where we're coming before the Lord and asking Him to provide for us. So we would do without food or do without water for a period of time to press into a greater desire and ask the Lord to reveal things in our heart that are, are being satisfied by something that's not Him. And Jesus says, we got to be careful even when we are fasting. Because just like worship, just like prayer, just like almsgiving, even that can become about us. Where we're doing it just to show off our self-righteousness, our seriousness, 
about our spiritual walk. Essentially, Christ is saying, don't invite someone to lunch just to let them know that you're fasting. Hey, Kurt, let's go get lunch. We sit down, we get our menus out. He orders his food. Oh, I'm not going to have anything. Well, why not? You invited me to lunch. Oh, I'm fasting. You eat. No, no, no. You please eat, eat. I want, I want to see you eat, and I want you to see me not eating. And then we'll think about who's the godlier of the two of us. No, eat your food. That's fine. I'm going I'm to eat over here on spiritual food. Please eat. Don't do that. Don't go around groaning how hungry you are, how thirsty you are, because you are doing without. Don't, don't put an expression on your face. Oh, I'm so terrible today. I feel terrible because I'm fasting. Don't, don't draw attention to yourself in your fasting. Rather, allow the purpose of fasting to be accomplished in your life. Press into the hunger. Press into the thirst and, and see whether or not there's something that you're hungering more than God for are thirsting more than you are for God. Allow the spiritual purpose to be accomplished as your heart is on Him, not on the approval of others. Even in public settings, you've got to fast as if only you and God know. Don't do it just to be impressive. Do it to hear from God. Our worship matters. Our public worship matters. And it's important that we have the right heart when we engage in these things. Otherwise, it will do a disservice to us and it will do a disservice to the purpose that God has for them, for our brothers and sisters in the world around us. So how should we respond to this incredible teaching from Matthew chapter 6? Let me just offer four responses to the challenge that Jesus offers us in, in the arena of prayer and fasting. Firstly, as God's people, we should make the disciplines of prayer and fasting a priority. Look at verses 5 and 16 for a minute. What does Jesus say? Does he say, and if you pray, and if you fast? What does he say? When? What's the difference there? It's pretty clear that Jesus expects his disciples to, pra- to fast and pray. If you're a part of the kingdom of God... If you are a a son or daughter of God, you're going to engage in the spiritual tools that God has given you to pursue him. And that includes prayer and fasting. Jesus expects his people to pray. Jesus expects his people to fast. And friends, I think we need to grow in this commitment. Individually, as a people, we need to be committed to prayer and fasting, seeking the Lord. Let me tell you, if you are too busy to pray, you are too busy. And you're not that busy. I heard a a quote from John Piper this past week that's really stuck with me. He says, one of the greatest uses of Facebook and Twitter will be to show that our prayerless lives were not for lack of time. Jared, I just don't have time to pray. How much time did you spend on Facebook yesterday? How much time did you spend on Instagram yesterday? How much time did you spend on Twitter yesterday or whatever these other ones that are coming out right now? Any social media platforms. How much time did you spend on that? Probably a lot. How much time did you spend watching the Masters yesterday? How much time did you spend binge watching your latest 
show on Netflix or Hulu? How much time are you going to spend watching football today? You tell me none of that time could be used for prayer? Now, wouldn't it be more beneficial than any of those things? I promise you, social media is not for your benefit. Prayer is. Social media drives you to be more concerned about what people think of you. Whereas prayer drives you to be more concerned about what he thinks of you. It's not that we don't have time, friends. And maybe you need to fast from some of these things in order to get your prayer life right. Let's make time. Let's see the expectation of our Father, of our, of our Savior, and respond. And not only individually, secondly, as God's people, let's strive to grow in prayer and fasting corporately for the glory of God, doing this together. Remember, the whole point of the interaction here in chapter 6 is Christ addressing public acts of worship. So the expectation is not only that we would do it individually, but that we would do it as a people. We should pray together. It is good for us to declare our dependence to God corporately. It is good for us to respond to the revelation of God corporately in prayer. It benefits us and it benefits the world outside. It's good for us to fast together. I'm going to confess, I don't think I've led us well on that part. I think we need to do more especially in moments of difficulty, in moments of hardship. We need to seek the Lord in fasting to remind ourselves what we truly need. I want us to, to desire this. And I know it sounds hard. I know that typically when you hear, hey guys, we're having Sunday morning prayer. We're going to gather for an hour before worship. And we want you to come join us. Or on Wednesday nights, hey, listen, we're going to set aside an hour on Wednesday night and we're going to gather together to pray. I know that sounds difficult. And maybe even for some of you sounds boring. How am I going to pray for an hour? I can't even pray five minutes. Doesn't it sound desirous to me? I, I want you to challenge yourself. I want you to see the call of the people of God to gather to pray and to gather to fast. And when opportunities present themselves, I want you to come. Ask the Lord to give you a hunger. Ask the Lord to give you a desire to pray with the people of God and make it a priority. Make it a priority. I want you to hear me this morning. We will not do anything of eternal consequence as a people if it is not undergirded by the work of the Spirit. And we need to pray and seek the Lord in fasting to ask him to do what only he can do. Otherwise, what are we relying on? What, what does our lack of prayer reveal about what we think we need to do the work of ministry? A different idea? Human advice? Principles from the corporate world? Or do we need God's spirit to move? Oh, man, the Lord would grow our desire to pray and to fast together, to ask him to do what only he can do, that we would have that kind of conviction about our need for him. Thirdly, as God's people, let's ask the Spirit to reveal any impurities in our practice of worship, making sure that our heart is right every time we gather together 
that, that we would be spiritually sensitive in those moments, right? Like when we're singing that song and we know we're about to hit that note and that moment comes when we're thinking, oh, I want somebody to hear me, that the Holy Spirit would have enough control of our heart to say, repent of that and that you would respond. That up here, I, I hope they like that joke. I hope that they like the way I phrased that. That the Holy Spirit would have enough control of my heart to say, repent of that. It's not about you. Your prayers, or whatever it is that you're doing in, in the public expression of worship. And let me just speak about prayer more specifically since God did. Certainly when we pray publicly, we've got to make sure that the Lord guards our hearts. That we're not praying for the approval of man. But let me also say this. There's also an issue when you refuse to pray publicly. Jared, I'm, un- I'm uncomfortable praying publicly in my small group or in service or even over a meal one-on-one. Well, why are you uncomfortable? Because I'm worried about what the other, people, other person's going to think about me. I'm not that well-spoken. I don't have all the right things to say. They're a much better prayer than I am. Let me ask you this question. Does your father care? No. He just wants you to talk to him. My daughter... It's barely speaking. She got a lot of words down, a lot of words she doesn't. But every time she talks to me, I love it. Even if I can't understand it, I don't care. My daughter's talking to me. Isn't that incredible? Listen, God wants you to talk to him. Pray. Pray in public. And don't be worried about what other people think. Worry about what God thinks. And if there's somebody in our church that makes fun of you for the way that you pray, you bring him to me. And we'll have a nice godly conversation in love that will hopefully lead them to prayer and repentance. So don't let, don't let the approval of man be the reason you want to pray. Don't let the approval of man be the reason you refuse to pray. Both are issues of the heart. Finally, as God's people, we should pray that our genuine worship would be used by God to advance his kingdom. That others would see our good works And they would glorify God. Listen, I don't want people coming to our church asking, what program do they have in place that's causing them all that growth? What leadership structure, what book did they read that got them to the place that they're at? I want them to come and look at us and see a people who are dependent upon the Lord to do what only he can do. Who are so consumed with prayer so consumed with fasting, so consumed with generosity that is bursting forth the favor of God and the gifts of the Spirit. And that is what is transforming our church and reaching our community. I want people outside of the church to look at us and say, there's something different about these people. There's got to be something different about their God. How are they not fighting with each other all the time? How are they not wanting to see each other destroyed? How are they not canceling each other? How do they actually talk to one another and forgive one another? How is that possible? And it gives us the opportunity to say that it's only because of the work of Christ. Come join us. And this people who are sitting under a gracious Savior. Wouldn't that be great? The way that we worshiped didn't draw attention to us, but pointed people to God and the salvation he has authored in Christ. Would that be your prayer? It's mine. May God do it. Wherever you are, would you bow your head, spend some time before the Lord?
asking him to help you know how to respond this morning to the preaching of God's word. First question I got to ask is, do you know Jesus? Have you found the approval of God through the approval of his son? There's nothing you can do to earn the favor of God. Christ has earned it for you. And if you will come under his sacrifice, you will move from an enemy of God to a child of God. Not just now, but for all of eternity. Have you ever repented and believed in Jesus and his salvation? If not, that today would be the day that your heart would be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You would confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved. For the rest of us, how's your heart? What are you serving the Lord for? Are you worshiping God to get the approval of man? Are you worshiping for his approval only? My guess is, probably for all of us, it's a mixture of a little bit of both. Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to further commit? And corporately, would you pray that God, beginning in your leadership and moving through the seats of this church, that every one of us would have birth within us a desire to seek the Lord, to pray, to fast, to express our dependence upon him, to do more than we could ever ask or imagine, that we would rely upon him and that our practice would look like it. God, do something special among us, we pray. Root these convictions in our heart for your glory. We want to be a kingdom outpost to show the glory of our King. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads.